At the root, there are really two embittered worldviews that are engaged in a struggle. On the one hand, secular liberalism, and the, on the other, uh, religious conservatism. I'm sure everyone here is familiar with the Supreme Court's misguided decision earlier this year allowing the 40-foot towering Bladensburg Cross to remain on public land in Maryland. Uh, I think that if you are going to believe in God and talk about it as being the same thing as believing in your wife, then you need to provide the, the same kind of evidence. And it isn't the religion that gets the criticism, it's just the bigotry. It, the main subject is an attack because that's taboo. And we're also a religious success story. We have gone forth and multiplied. But now we have to stop or it will be our downfall. In March 2001, he killed a man and ate him along with a glass of fine red wine. A crime so bizarre it horrified and mystified the world. I tried debating with you people, but you're saying, oh, God, did it, and he's this magical man. He doesn't exist. He's about as real. He's even less real than Mickey Mouse. <laughs> the Bible is no more proof than God exists, than a comic book is no more proof than Superman exists. Okay. But anybody in this room who calls yourself a Christian, if you think you have scientific evidence to indicate you're God, bring it. You ain't got it. I win. Paul wrote in the Bible, God is not the author of confusion. But can you think of a single book that caused more confusion than that Bible? Here, we discuss real issues of life from a biblical worldview. Welcome to Worldview Clash Class. George Orwell wrote uh, in his original preface to Animal Farm, he says, uh, it was the utmost important that people in Western Europe should see the Soviet regime for what it really is, a hierarchical society in which the rulers have no more reason to give up their power than any other ruling class. So he says it's no different than any other king or monarch or pharaoh or sultan throughout history. Mm. So, so that's the dilemma, uh, that without God, all government is, is a power grab. Mm. The default setting for human government is a game. It's, the default government is king killing Abel, and it's one king taking a king from another king. Uh, I talk about this in, in a book called Change to Chains, another book called Rise of the Tyrant, um, where you put some kids uh, on a playground and one of them is the bully. You put some junior high girls in the in a clique and one of them is the diva. Mm. You put some babies in a crib and one of them takes the rattle. You put some people in the woods, one of them is an Indian chief. You put some people in the inner city, one of them is a gang leader. And all a king is is a glorified gang leader. It's a hierarchical structure like a pyramid. If you're friends with the guy at the top, you're more equal. Mm. If you're not friends with the guy at the top, you're less equal. Mm. And if you're an enemy of the guy at the top, you're dead. It's called treason or you're a slave. And so it's this pyramid structure to society that keeps repeating itself because wherever you have people, you have this selfish fallen nature that keeps reappearing. Mm. Now, every now and then you get a good king and he wants to concentrate power so he can do good more efficiently. But he's not in power forever. And at some point it gets handed over to some grandson who's terrible 
And he uses this concentrated power to oppress people. And the a biblical example is uh, Joseph in Egypt helped concentrate power into the hands of Pharaoh. And what did that Pharaoh do with the concentrated power? He took care of the children of Israel. He fed them. He gave them the best land in Goshen. He gave them jobs taking care of his cattle. But then there was a new Pharaoh that did not know Joseph. And he uses all this concentrated power to oppress the children of Israel, even making them throw their sons in the Nile River. Hmm. So that's the dilemma. You'll get some good person in office and they're like, hey, I'm going to pretend like I'm going to be in here forever. And so let's just streamline everything so it'll go more efficiently. But, you know, you have William Howard Taft, a Republican, and he is, after being president, becomes the chief justice of the Supreme Court. He streamlines the federal court system. Mm. Prior to him, different courts would do diff make different decisions, and they did not always jive. And the country was fine with that. Sort of like today, some states have marijuana, some don't. Some states uh, outlaw big gulp sodas, others don't, right? Um, back then, some states made some uh, decisions in their you know, appeals court, and other states didn't. But everybody, well, here's a Republican, Taft, streamlines it so that when the, Federal, the Supreme Court says it, boom, every other court in the land has to honor it. Mm. And he's the Republican. But then the Democrats take office with Franklin Roosevelt and him pushing all these liberals on the Supreme Court. And they're like, hey, we want to push all this liberal agenda. And as soon as these judges make the decision, boom, law of the land. Mm. You know, and so... Um, so again, this idea, you get a good person in there and they start the Department of Education. Oh, we want all the kids to be educated. But once you get the federal government in charge and they begin to push their transgendered agenda and, and now they're, we're, you know, it's um, this dilemma. So you get some you know, good Christian businessman and he follows Christian principles and he builds a successful business and lots of money. Then he hands it over to some grandson who's a liberal and uses all this money to promote causes that his granddad would have never promoted. Mm. And um, so, so the, the, the evil that our founders saw was the concentration of power. Um, and so it goes back to, here's Nimrod. He concentrates power in, in, um, in Babylon. And Josephus, the Jewish commentator, said that um, Nimrod made everyone in town bake bricks and bring them to build his tower. Uh, and if they didn't, he would kill them. And that he wanted to build this tower so if God destroyed the world again with a flood, he could survive on top. So the tower sort of had a defiant, in-your-face attitude toward God. God comes down, confuses the languages, and the people scatter. And uh, but it's almost like every generation since has tried to rebuild the Tower of Babel, mm. tried to reconcentrate power. But each time it comes around, it's a little bit worse because with military advancements, the tyrant can kill more people. And with technological advancements, they can track more people. I mean, here's Augustus Caesar wanting to have a worldwide census to track everyone. I guarantee if he could have had a, a Chinese social credit system and computer chips and drones and cameras everywhere, Augustus Caesar would attract everybody that way. Mm. But And then with military weapons, instead of Cain killing Abel with a stone, 
You have bronze weapons and iron weapons and phalanx spears that the Greeks had and scimitar swords that the Muslims had. You had, you know, gunpowder and finally nuclear power. But the weapon changes, but it's that same fallen nature. Mm. Uh, so, so all technology is is a magnifier of your heart. If you're a godly person, you'll use all the satellite technology to do Bible studies and try to, you know, encourage people or whatever. If you're a sinful person, you'll use all that satellite technology and computers for pornography, no different than Sodom and Gomorrah. Mm. That it's that same, and, and money's just a magnifier. You give a good person money, they'll help people with it. You give a selfish person money, they'll find a way to, to manipulate it and uh, spread evil around and, um, you know, pro- buy prostitutes and sex trafficking and mm. all that and drugs and so, uh, so money's just a magnifier. Technology is a magnifier. The, the physical world is basically uh, a, a, a living out expression of what's in your spirit, what's in your heart. And, uh, you know, God has given us the opportunity to, to give and, and be charitable and, mm. and express his love for people. Um, but the devil wants to use people and, and have evil take place. But, um, but anyway, so, so you look at time, the most common form of government's a king, and with technological advancements and military advancements, these kings can control and kill more people and more people and until finally uh, the king of England was the biggest uh, at the time. He, he son never said on the British Empire, America's founders broke away and flipped it and made the people the king. Uh, the word citizen is Greek. It means co-king. And... Um, a democracy is where the people rule directly. So at every meeting, every day, everybody had to talk about everything. Um, very time-consuming. And logistically, you couldn't get to the downtown every day if you lived too far away. So, so the original Greek democracies were small, what they called city-states. Republics are different. Republic is where you take care of your family and your farm. And you have someone in your place that goes to the market every day and talks politics. They are your representative. So the REP in Republic is the same REP in representative. So you're the king. You're just ruling through representatives. Germany in the 1920s was a republic, the Weimar Republic. And then someone started a uh, political party called the National Socialist Workers Party. And... um, it was, the acronym is Nazi, National Arbeitser Socialistis Party, Nazi, and um, the head of it was Adolf Hitler. And he had a violent arm to his party called the Brown Shirts, or the Sturmabteilung, which means storm troopers. And they were like a BLM Antifa group, and they would storm into the meeting of Hitler's opponents and shout down the speakers and disrupt the meeting. And then they would lock arms and block access to buildings and block streets. Could you imagine people locking arms and blocking things? And, and then they went into the cities and they smashed the windows and looted the stores of over 7,000 Jewish stores in one night. It's called the Night of Broken Glass, Crystal Nacht. And, um, and in the confusion, people want somebody to come along and restore order. So Hitler the very one that was behind all this violence, he rounds up all his political opponents and has them shot without a trial. 
and the dust settles, and Hitler is now the Fuhrer. He's now ruling, and so Germany transitions from a republic to a dictatorship because of this crisis that was created by Hitler's own people. Then World War II is over, and Germany, France, and England give independence to their former colonies, and they form brand new countries with brand new leaders, Czechoslovakia, Hungary, Poland, Lithuania, Romania, and, um, and Russia has a debate whether or not communism should just run Russia or should it rule the world. And they decided the second. So they send KGB agents into these brand new countries and they identify groups with grievances, racially, economically, religiously, ethnically, and they break them into groups of victims and oppressors, mm. haves and have-nots, and then they would stage protests that they would escalate into riots. And then they would have violence in the streets. And then they would co-opt the media with bribes and threats to blame the leader of the country for all the problems. They would even release false polling data showing the leader is unpopular when he in actual fact was popular. And then they would cultivate weak links in the military. And when the country got panicky enough, they would do a coup or a rigged election and replace the leader with a Soviet puppet. And 45 countries felt the communism this way. And uh, Truman does nothing. He thinks that the uh, United Nations that he helped form would bring world peace. But then there is a, a new president, Eisenhower, and he's faced with a problem. The potential for the disastrous rise of misplaced power exists and will persist. Iran sides with the Soviet Union and nationalizes the Iranian oil industry. And you say, what big deal? Wait a second, Britain had no oil. And in 1908, Britain formed the Anglo-Iranian Oil Company. You know it better as BP. British Petroleum is the Anglo-Iranian Oil Company. So when Iran nationalized it, um, Britain had no oil. So they appealed to Eisenhower, who approves the first CIA operation to overthrow a country's leaders called Operation Ajax. The CIA operative on the ground was Kermit Roosevelt Jr., the grandson of Teddy Roosevelt. And he goes over to Tehran and he does the same thing in reverse. He recruits mobsters and gangsters and radical imams. And he stages protests and riots and they attack mosques. And then they co-opt the media with bribes and threats to blame the Iranian leader Mossadegh for all the problems. And um, they cultivate weak links in the military. And when the country got panicky and confused enough, they put Mazadek under house arrest, locked him away for the rest of his life where he died, and they installed the Shah, who loved America because we put him in. And the CIA did the same thing in Guatemala in 1954, the Congo 1960, Dominican Republic, even Chile 1973. And the KGB did the same thing with Brezhnev helping Yasser Arafat to start the PLO and Brezhnev hugging Castro to take over Cuba and Brezhnev helping to take over you know, the Russian countries, taking over countries in Latin South America, Africa. They had hundreds of coups in countries in Africa. And, um, and then China in the Far East. This is called the Cold War. and mm. cover. Be sure and remember what Bert the Turtle just did, friends, because every one of us must remember to do the same thing. That's what this film is all about. Duck and cover. And you had the KGB and the CIA um, orchestrating 
these takeovers of countries, um, sort of a proxy wars between the two of them. Uh, so it's not an out-and-out, face-to-face Russia-American war, but it's on, in, on the ground in these countries. But they're perfecting these tactics. The only difference this time around is these tactics are being used on American soil. Mm. And the, uh, all the different techniques were, um, under the previous president, were co-opted. Just the same way that the IRS was co-opted to audit all kinds of conservative groups and go after them and shut them down. Uh, it wasn't just the IRS that was co-opted. All the federal agencies were co-opted, including the intelligence. And one of the examples of this is Rome. Rome was a republic for 500 years. They had 600 senators that represented all their different areas of, of Rome. And... Um, uh, Julius Caesar uh, found a way to usurp power. Uh, you know, there's this story of him uh, conquering, you know, he, his family went bankrupt. He joined the military to escape debt, debt collectors because in the Roman society, if you're in the military, the debt collectors can't get you. Uh, turns out he's a great general, conquers all areas of Europe, even invades Britain, and brings back a whole lot of free stuff and slaves and gives them out to the people of the city of Rome. So they like him because he's giving him free stuff. And then um, he is uh, marching toward Rome and he has his army and they tell him, disband your army before you come into Rome. And he crosses the Rubicon River with his army. He does not disband his army. And then he comes into Rome and then he gets involved in politics and uh, he starts the cult of Julius Caesar and makes his, his general, Mark Anthony, his high priest. He makes himself a god. And, and then it turns into a tug-of-war between him and Pompey. And Caesar raids the federal treasury, the Temple of Saturn, and takes the money to buy rioters and uh, all kinds of you know corrupt people to um, uh, overthrow the country and get rid of Pompey. And, and then Caesar rules as a dictator. And... Um, uh, he still keeps the outward show of a republic, but he appoints 300 extra senators. So now there's 900 senators, and he gets the majority on everything, so he basically gets his way. And, uh, and that's when Rome ceases to be a republic, and it turns into an empire. But here, it existed as a republic for 500 years, so it got top-heavy, and then that, that be, you know greased beach balls flipped up, and... Um, and so we're right at that tipping point. If, if Hitler has uh, the national socialism, and from what I understand anyway, the problem is a race problem. We have to get rid of the Jews. Uh, so so it, it's sort of like a racial war. And then we look at um, Stalin, and Stalin is saying, you know, it's, it's an economic, it's, it's, a, it's a class problem. So I see now a little bit into how these men were able to, to dupe everyone. So today we have uh, men versus women. Uh, we have all of these racial divides. Then we also have the economic divides. We have um, the people that are calling themselves socialists, the people that are calling themselves capitalists. I mean, Bill, it looks like whatever leader is going to come in and fix the fracturing has a lot of of pieces to glue back together. So 
if, if Hitler had just this one purpose and Stalin had this one purpose, I mean, looking at today, is today like the perfect view of cultural Marxism, do you think, with the amount of divides that there are? Um, yeah, so the uh, patriotism is the enemy. Uh, patriotism is we're all different, but we want to live together safely in a country and have our own free choices. And we're willing to work together um, under God to be able to all of us enjoy these freedoms. Um, the opposite of that is you get people to break into subgroups and you pit the subgroups against each other to create division. And in that division, everybody feels uh, unsafe and they panic and they give up their freedoms. This is how the British took over India. In 1714, the British landed in Bengal and set up a trading post that turns into a fort and they end up having guns and then they end up getting involved in the local politics and they give guns to one kingdom and then they give guns to another kingdom and then they stir up ancient animosities between the kingdoms until they break out into war and they fight each other, beat each other up and then when they're all depleted, the British come in to quote unquote restore order and they take away their guns and then they do it again to another kingdom and another kingdom until they take over a quarter of the world's population, all of India is now under the British. They tried doing that in America with the Revolutionary War, going to the Indians and inciting them to attack the Americans from on the frontier, promising them gold for scalps. And um, and so this tactic, uh, this divide and conquer, you go in and get, um, you know, there's even Bible stories where, you know, there's a, a king and he gets another king to t country to team up with them and they're going to lay siege to Israel and then uh, they end up uh, getting into fighting each other and then when the Israelis show up well, you know they're all dead because they killed each other and it's like the, the division was sowed inside of them but you know the Romans uh, when they were laying siege to Jerusalem there were three different groups in Jerusalem that had quartered off the city and they were fighting each other and they they kept fighting each other until lo and behold the Romans had surrounded the city they, if, if they had teamed up together and been unified, then, then they may have been able to stand a chance. But this infighting, um, and, and so it, um, and you look at how Islam advanced. Um, you know, there were three Jewish tribes in Medina, and uh, Muhammad comes in and, and he picks on one of the Jewish tribes, and the other two stand back if they didn't like that tribe. And Muhammad confiscates their property, chases them out. Now there's two Jewish tribes and he picks on one and the big one sort of keeps its head low thinking, well, he's not noticing me. And then finally he surrounds the, the last Jewish tribe and chops off their heads. If they would have laid aside their differences and said, hey, we're going to defend ourselves, Muhammad wouldn't have had a chance. But he picked them off one moment so that he divided them first. And so this concept is sort of standard uh, in taking over a country, you want to get people to break into subgroups and pit them against each other. So in Marxism, uh, Karl Marx, it, yeah, he advocated breaking them into uh, the proletariat and the bourgeois, which is the working class and the business owners. But then it brought into organizing the blacks against the whites, the Catholics against the Protestants, the Muslims against the Christians, the, the Hutus against the Tutsis in the Congo and Rwanda. I mean, they actually created a race.
I mean, they went in there and measured their heads and said, okay, if you got this size head, you're a Hutu and the other, you're a Tutsi. And then they began to stir them up to fight each other. And in that confusion, they were able to seize power and take control of the whole country. And, um, uh, and so this, this tactic um, is being, the difference this time around, is being used on, on our own soil. So um, in Proverbs chapter 6, it says, Six things the Lord hates, yea, seven are an abomination to him. The seventh is he that soweth discord amongst the brethren. Mm. And uh, we have the Bible story of Abimelech, one of the sons of Gideon. And, uh, you know, Gideon defeated the 100,000 Midianites, and the country's happy and it's prospering. Well, Abimelech goes to the city of Shechem, and he does race politics. He says, I'm one of you. I'm your flesh and your bone. And they said, well, he's our brother. And so they take money from the temple of Balbarith, just like Julius Caesar took money from the temple of Saturn. And, um, and he hires vain and worthless persons, rioters, to go out and riot and kill all of the sons of Gideon. And then Abimelech made himself king. And um, he ruled for three years until somebody threw a millstone over a, a wall that he was laying siege to. But, um, but this idea is he used division politics. So the Bible says how good and perfect you know, it is that brethren dwell together in unity. So it's this idea that we don't agree on everything, but we have to be humble and say, hey, you know, I've got to take the you know, log out of my own eye before I can take the splinter out of yours. And, mm. and so I, I may not be totally understanding everything, so you've got to have grace and, and you get along with each other. You know, whatever you do, at least he's my brethren, you do unto me and the Our Father. Forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those. So God knew we wouldn't agree on everything, but he puts us in these positions where we have to learn to love and get along and forgive, even though we don't totally mentally agree. And, um, and so we, we, I, I was speaking to a youth group one time, and it was in a room, and there was like a big light on the ceiling. And I said, now everybody look up at that light. And uh, you know, keep your eyes on it. Now, while you're looking at that light, tell me, what color is the person's eyes next to you? What color sh shirt do they have? What, what, what kind of shoes do they have on? What, you know, now don't take your eyes off the light. You, know, tell, um, you can't tell. You, know, you can't remember what, what, you know. And so as long as we keep our eyes on Jesus, we do not see our differences. Mm. Once we take our eyes off of Jesus, we begin to see, hey, you're different than I am. And you're different than I am. And, and, um, and so... That difference, that focusing on it, is the strategy that, that the devil uses. Uh, Saul Linsky wrote in his book, and Hillary Clinton did her senior thesis on Saul Linsky, and the previous president was the Saul Linsky community organizer in Chicago. But Saul Linsky's book, he says the community organizer's first job is disorganizing. The community organizer must rub raw the resentments of the people of the community. Community organizer must stir up dissatisfaction and discontent, fan the flames of hostility to the point of overt expression. Community organizer must seek out controversy rather than avoid it, lead his forces into conflict. And so, uh, Solinsky has an acknowledgement in front of his book to Lucifer, to the first rebel who you know, rebelled against the establishment, Lucifer. So what's Lucifer's strategy? Sowing discord. And, um, and so what's the opposite of it? It's forgiving and humble and loving. And, um, and so uh, anyway, but that's the political strategy that um, 
has been used, this, this sowing of discord so that there's social chaos and crises, so that people will beg the government to come in with, with enough power to restore order, but in the process they usurp your freedoms and your rights and um, your guns and everything. And uh, when the dust settles, you flip the country from the people ruling themselves from the bottom up to a dictator, tyrant, fuhrer, you know, ruling from the top down. This has been Worldview Clash Class. For more content like this please visit us on the web at clcwaverly.com. Welcome to World New Clash Class.